This is Media Business Matters, the podcast for why recent news in the media matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Zintner. After a week at the theater, we're pivoting back to discuss the changing business of TV by taking a look at an article by Joe Adalian, The Business of Peak TV. One of the themes that we've been looking at throughout our podcast run has been looking at the way the television business was changing. And this article is going to give us a unique lens to do so. So, Amanda, kind of give us a broad overview of the piece if you can. It was a nice piece of reporting, and so much of the constant you know, flow or demand for content has required that often industry journalists are just you know writing about what happened today. But this was one of those great pieces that really probably took months to research, but interviewed a number of people working in all different capacities in television production, and really did a nice job, as its title mentions, of taking a look at the business of peak TV, peak TV being this idea that the critics have been banding about for the last nine months or so, that we're producing more television in the U.S. than we ever have before. And that number for 2015 was 412 shows. 412! That's an obscene amount of television for anybody to be watching. Right. It's really clear when you look at some of the charts how significant that growth is when you compare that that peak figure, that top figure, with how small of an, an amount broadcast is. And, and, and historically, broadcast has remained relatively constant during that time. They've only grown by a small percentage point. Right. There were, for the most part, 22 hours of prime time for you know, much of television history. And so all of the additional production is coming from cable and then the streaming services. Although it, it's coming a lot more from cable than the streaming services. Um, if you look at the growth numbers, well, streaming is starting out from nothing. But in terms of the growth in number of series, a lot of that number does come from cable still. Sure, and, and there, there are explanations such as the fact that series orders or episode orders tend to be shorter, and so that allows for more series to be on the air. But th- there's no doubt about it. There, there's more television being produced than there has been before. And when this idea first came up, John Landgraf uh, is the one who brought it up. He went to the Television Critics Association press tour and talked about there being this bubble. You know, he talked about there will reach a point, he put it somewhere in the next couple of years, where TV networks are not going to be able to keep up the growth at this pace, and we're actually going to see a decline in the number of shows. I mean, do you think he's right? Is there a bubble? Yeah, so I think we have to push on this idea of, of what a bubble is, right? And we talked about in the past, you know, there was a bubble, there was the dot-com bubble, and then there was a housing bubble. And, and I think what that notion of a bubble relates to is that there's, there's some irrationality in the market. And I think, yes, there is some irrationality in the market right now. We can't necessarily see it yet, or I, I think smart people do see it. It's, but the economics of television are a bit delayed, and so it makes sense that we're not yet seeing the consequences. But I think those consequences will come. And so I think the, the notion or the way that will the fallout that will actually come from the bubble will be when the shows that are being produced now aren't able to earn the kind of revenue in additional and in later windows that is being that is at least expected for them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at at some point we're going to see the network stop being able to make the same amount of money and make and just keep up the pace with this content because they're You know, with supply and demand, if for some reason the demand goes down and the supply is going up... Well, it's it's part of all of this broader shift in, in television that really there hasn't been that much attention to, which is 
the revenue streams that the those making television have aren't just dependent on ad support in the way they long were. And that's been another thing, another truth that John Landgraf has brought us uh, in talking about the way that the percentage of revenue that FX receives from ad support when he started in, in 2004, 2005 was around 50%. And it's now down in the mid 34s. And he says it's dropping a percentage a year. And so what's happened, and, and so that's part of why we're not seeing the crisis yet, because ad support and those ad dollars, they're the immediate bellwether. But the later pieces of finance that matter is what happens with subscription revenues, the money that the cable service providers like Comcast pay to each of the cable networks per household uh, every month. And those, we're starting to see reason to see those being a little bit softer than they used to be. As and the carriage fights have become plentiful as the cable networks and the cable companies battle over that number. Right, because rightfully, I would argue... People just don't have more money to spend on television, and increasingly there are options that allow them to move away from those fat bundles. Uh, so that's happening. And then the other side of it, and that's the other side is the intellectual property and, and the way in which the business has really become about the studios and the networks or channels owning the content. And, and so that is when a new show doesn't sell to a cable channel in syndication or Netflix isn't willing to pay the amount for to license that show in, in a later stream, that's when we'll really see the fallout. But right now, in, honestly, you know, it's the salaries of the 1% that are really making the noise. And there's a lot of noise to be made. And those, those are there. Some of them are really insane. And Adalian does a great job of, of bringing them up. Uh, so, so that's a piece of the insanity of a bubble. But I think it's also important to acknowledge that that kind of 1% crazy money rarely equates with great success. And so the networks and channels and studios are, are throwing money at projects that they hope break through. Um, sometimes just a big announcement about paying someone a whole bunch of money, that breaks through and provides noise and promotion. Uh, but it remains to be seen whether a lot of those big paydays actually mean anything in terms of ratings or in terms of, of shows with some longevity. And we, we kind of see both sides of this on different negotiations. Like, I'm sure the salary that the cast of The Big Bang Theory is making right now, a million an episode for the stars, is well worth it for Warner Brothers to keep producing it. And every time there's been a huge negotiation over whether or not, you know, how much more money these stars can make. And we're going to see another renegotiation in the next year or so because the show's due to end in 2017. And that's a good point, is the need to really look at apples with apples. And and the Big Bang Theory, that is a classic model show, right? That's a, a network show through and through. It's earning the kind of money that a lot of shows are never going to earn, will never hope to earn. I think my biggest question is whether there's even anything like the Big Bang Theory that comes after it in terms of that this model of this juggernaut um, that costs millions to produce per episode, again, because you've got high cast cost, by, especially by later episodes, but then also a show that can generate billions and billions and billions of revenue because it's still being sold to sort of fill in these spots on a schedule somewhere for a broadcast station and, and on cable channels. Right. We've had cases like The Big Bang Theory. We've also had cases like, say, A Modern Family or A 30 Rock, where they do make a lot of money in syndication, but that money falls away really quickly because viewers don't turn out to these secondary networks to watch it. USA 
is not having as great success with Modern Family as TBS has with The Big Bang Theory, for example. And, you know, I, I hate to use the genre comparison here, but multicam versus single cam. Traditionally, it, it's hard to speak in definites, but traditionally we've seen multicams do much better in syndication than these single camera shows from the early to mid 2000s. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that we have the evidence to, to chalk it up to style and genre necessarily. I think if we think about a Netflix experience that's available now, I think I'm actually somewhat surprised that we haven't had greater weakness in the syndication market before now. I mean, it does speak to the fact that Netflix is still only in about 30 million U.S. households, so roughly a third. But if you have a half hour or an hour to watch TV, are you going to fire something up on Netflix where you can watch exactly what you want and in a second pick up where you left off? Or are you going to watch whatever episode just happens to be on TBS right now? And are you, are you going to take the time to flip through the channels and find, you know, the one show that you're interested in watching that's on during that point in time? All right, so that's where I think I think we'll we're, we've not even begun to see the crisis that that will yet occur uh, as as the back end for some of these properties isn't at all what is expected. What are some other consequences of this huge amount of television being made? Well, I think one of the the real fascinating bits about the article to me was the way in which the shortage of talent, um, Italian traced it out in, in fields and jobs that I would have necessarily expected. There's been a fair bit of conversation about a shortage of showrunners and really how difficult it is to find experienced writing and showrunning talent. But uh, Adalia went much further to really talk about some of the crises that are being seen with crews and the, the tensions of having production space and being able to get the props or the dollies or things like that that you need. Uh, so those are, those are all interesting and, and real challenges um, that you're seeing from showrunners all the way to crew. Uh, he had a quote from Carlton Coos talking about comparing about comparing the state of peak TV as what would happen if the National Football League suddenly expanded to 90 teams and the way in which you would have a lot of football available to you, but the quality of it will be diluted. And so I think there's a lot of, of excitement around peak TV, but, but this also points to a challenge. And I think there doesn't seem to be any particular show captivating um, the culture in the way that there have been in the past. I don't know whether that's that dilution at work or whether really what's happening is that there are all these different specific hits with much more specific taste communities. You know, and so I, I and that's just as important. And so I think maybe that's what's happening. But you know, if that number keeps growing, I think the the issue of quality and dilution may grow to be a noticeable issue. I mean, it's, it's the question of quality versus quantity. And I, I find it interesting because the way we think of a hit has changed. Something like, say, Game of Thrones. Huge hit for HBO and even expanding beyond, a little bit beyond that fantasy audience. But when you look at the number, you know, it, it's not even where the top broadcast show is right now. You know, something like Empire, which is another big hit, but also in a very specific audience. Right. So there definitely now are different ways of, of talking about success. Although coming back to perhaps the pieces that matter the most in a show about media business matters, um, it comes back to those economics. And so right. Game of Thrones can, it, it's not about the numbers because it's driving people to subscribe to HBO and their worldwide business with the, with the show is just tremendous. And they can afford to spend, you know, $10 million on an episode of the show, which is obscene when you think about it in terms of what a drama usually costs. But 
for that audience that every dollar counts. And there are also more practical issues when we're talking about consequences. Uh, one of the things that's happening, again, with sort of the, the changing business of television, right? We have more series. Uh, they have shorter seasons. A lot of talent is paid per episode. And so while you may have an opportunity to work on this really creative 10-episode series, you're looking at potentially making half the money, if not actually less than that because of the different way the scales work. Uh, and so increasingly, different parts of the television production process are looking to pick up other series. And so uh, one of the things that Adalian talks about and, and I've seen written about elsewhere is what happens uh, when you have writers who are actually working on a couple of other shows um, in order to you know, make the amount of money that they used to make. And you know, I think there's the possibility that that begins to lead to changes in the norm of a writer's room where all the writers would sit in one room and break stories. When you have five or six people that are working on different shows and different schedules, then maybe that, can, that collaborative space becomes more difficult to, to achieve. And yet that, that's been one of the cornerstones of television throughout its entire time is, you know, you have this room of people who stay together, who write the show together, who you, you kind of hear about the family of these writers' mm -hmm. rooms. And that, it, it's interesting to me that something like that would change because, it, you know, television has always been a very glacial industry in terms of its change. So if you're starting to see hints of it now... Imagine where it's going. I think where it's going is that there will be a lot of diversification. And I think we're starting to see some of that now. And, and there always have been particular creative talents that uh, really owned their shows all to themselves and relied very little on writers' rooms. And Someone like Aaron Sorkin, for example. Sorkin, David E. Kelly. Um, I'm forgetting his name, but uh, the true detective uh, Nick writer. Nick Pizzolatto. Right. Um, and so... So I, we already have some of that diversity, and, and it leads to different shows in different ways, and so maybe there'll just be more of that. So I don't think that's a, a bad thing or a good thing. I think the thing I'm most interested in it as is as a consequence for writers that has a real material consequence. Right, and this isn't the only issue that's being brought up in Adalian's article. Uh, he talks about how the wealth within the TV industry isn't being distributed equally. Hi, Bernie. How you doing? Well, right. And, and it, was never, it was never distributed equally. I mean, I think the one thing that's very clear and, and, and the article touches on is that no one is making Dick Wolf money anymore except for Dick Wolf, um, who amazingly is persisting with this old model. Um, and somehow has found massive success with not just Law & Order, but now with the Chicago franchise. I mean, they're about to put their fourth show on NBC in that franchise. Absolutely. It is without doubt a legendary story. But I also think, you know, it's a moment to step back and, and think about this old norm and, and not just mourn something because it's being lost or it's going away, but, but to ask questions about whether that was a good model. Uh, ask questions about what that meant for people working in the industry. Did it encourage creativity? Who was, getting a re who was being rewarded as a result? How did it lead to certain people getting many, many opportunities and others not getting very many at all? So again, I don't think change is uniformly a bad thing, but it's certainly something to keep an eye on. And one of the things, as a result, you know, there are more series to work on. People, there's there's tons of work out there. Um, the rates from all but the one percent are not as high as they have been in the past. And so maybe that just means that uh, talent requires you know a longer career, uh, which can be an issue. Um, 
there's big gender discrepancies from the start, but also if you look actors versus actresses in terms of the possible longevity. So that becomes an issue that affects women perhaps in different ways than men uh, and probably will require some better money management. We're not in an era anymore where you can, where you'll necessarily get that one hit. You know, you, you're not, we're not necessarily in an era where you can create one show and make money off of it for the rest of your life. You know, we're, that, I don't want to say it's a relic of the past because it can still, I mean, something like Empire shows, it can still happen. Oh, I but, don't know, though. I mean, I, I'm not sure that Empire will be an interesting to show if we could have access to the data. It would be fascinating, I think, to look at Empire 10 years from now. Uh, Empire is not going to be a show that, that creates what I used to call uh, Aaron Spelling money. We can now call Dick Wolf money, right? Um, it, it, doesn't have, money. it doesn't have the international legs. I, I'd be surprised if it even syndicates well here. I wouldn't be surprised if that's something that it, it isn't a big hit in syndication, but does really, really well with SVOD for a long time. Yeah, well, we'll have to be back in five years. I question the long time. And again, it's not a it's not a knock on Empire in any way. It's just really about how this world has changed. And the other side of peak TV is as an audience member. You know, I think we're just at the beginning of this notion of audiences moving out of current year programming. Um, but what happens when you know you're deciding what show to start watching next, and you're not only deciding among what's on TV this season, but you also have readily accessible all these shows from last year or the year before that you never or got to. Twenty years ago, that let's say you're you're in my place, you know, I wasn't alive when right. a lot of Tears was airing, so. You know, it, it's something like accessing these older shows. Mm -hmm. Since he is officially now the patron saint of this episode, we will quote John Landgraf one more time. <laughs> uh, Landgraf, I heard at the cable show uh, in 2015, he had this great, again, a great quote, um, talking about how historically when programmers were putting together a schedule, they were trying to come up with what is the show that people will watch at 10 o'clock on Sunday. And now the business is figuring out what show people will watch five and ten years from now. Um, and not only even watch, but talk about. And that's a really different goal, strategy, that leads to entirely different shows being produced. It, it, it's a different idea versus longevity now, or not even longevity now, just viewership now versus longevity later. I mean, it, it's. I think it's interesting to kind of look back at the shows that are still in the zeitgeist now. Something like an Arrested Development or Gilmore Girls. You know, I... I find it interesting that Landgraf is starting to take apart some of the pieces of what made these shows last as long a time. You know, I mean, Friends is another example. That Friends is a great one, right. And and I think right now we're still in an era which there weren't that many shows five years ago that you couldn't watch everything you wanted to. So we're not yet really seeing this. But I think it'll be you know another two, three years from now, I think that'll be another crisis point. And we, we've talked a little bit about this, but what are... Looking in the longer term, what are some problems that we could see going far into the future, whether they're related to the bubble or not? Well, I think one key issue is related, as we've been talking about, how talent is paid. And so this question of residuals. Um, and if you look at the somewhat archaic documents of the Writers Guild and Producers Guild and Screen Actors Guild, you know, there was this whole model for remunerating talent um, as these shows went on to make a great deal of money for studios that just doesn't make sense in this new environment. And so um, I mean, one place where writers have taken a huge hit is on the disappearance of the rerun. Now, while that's a great thing for the audience, um, writers made quite a bit just 
by having their episode air twice. And so that, you know, that's money that poof is gone. Um, but also if you look at the way residuals are structured, it's based on a certain number of airings. And so it's really built around a notion of how a linear schedule works. And so while the big writer's strike from 2008 was not that long ago, I, I think those documents really need to be reinvestigated as we do have some sort of shift away from linear syndication to make sure that that talent is making uh, the proper amount in their residuals from I mean, on demand. Do they get any residuals right now from SVOD or, <laughs> or a place like that? I will attempt to explain what I understand, which is that it's a certain percentage of um, the cable figure and it's per year though, instead of per airing. And so there's- And when these deals last years and years and years. Right, and these services don't in any way indicate how many people watch anything. And so uh, whether or not that changes and allows a better system of remuneration, um, I don't know, but See, that's a, it's a coming it, crisis. I find it interesting because I've had, I've had you know some highly placed executives tell me that they will have to release numbers eventually. They were, they were talking about how Netflix is going to eventually reach a point where they're going to have to answer for each and every show they're making. You know, they're, the investors are going to call for that moment. Right. And I don't mean to jump ahead, but, you know, that's part of one of those issues that I was, I've talked about in the short pieces that I've published about the, the changing economics. And I think one of the ways that the studios are or could potentially go around Netflix um, is the strategy that we're seeing with CBS and uh, launching their own services and having their own data. But we've talked a little bit about production budgets. Mm -hmm. So what happens when these production budgets go out up? What happens when, say, Game of Thrones now is costing $10 million an episode? All right. Well, again, it comes back to that basic economics. If production budgets go up, then the revenue has to go up, too. And right now, we just don't know a whole lot about the different subscriber, the subscription services, because we're seeing, especially in the, the internet service market, many of the new portals are launching with subscriber-funded business models. And so we don't have, they don't have a lot of data on what kind of return on investment they can expect. So I think it, it may be that we see these really rich deals for Netflix and Amazon Video early on. And maybe those are, you know, something that 10 years ago we talk about, oh, you remember back in 2015. So something like the Blacklist deal where the NBC or excuse me, not NBC, Sony. Yeah. Sony is the studio behind the blacklist, is getting $2 million an episode or something along those lines. You, you're thinking that that might be something, a form of the past, like well, syndication deals are now. Right. Well, that as well as some of the budgets that the original productions for those studios are getting. Although with the originals, you know, the, the portals get to hold on to them for a long time. And so it's, Don't it's the portal, a long Is it um, in perpetuity rights or... It's, you know, if only I had legal documents. Uh, right. The, the early deals for Netflix, uh, the one for House of Cards and Orange and the New Black, I mean, they weren't really international yet, and those, they, they don't have all the rights there. Um, but it, clearly the business model and the strategy would be to have rights for as long as possible. We had a really interesting story. Um, it wasn't all that important, I don't think, on its own um, in the last couple weeks, which was this announcement that a couple Netflix originals were going to um, Netflix has sold them effectively for syndication um, to, uh, I think it was Univision. Um, and so 
so sort of there was this discussion of reverse indication. It's like there's nothing reverse about it. It's a studio that owns the content distributing it. It's a standard syndication deal. It is. It just wasn't necessarily what was expected. And I don't think it's a bellwether for for other productions. I think there were certain reasons that these particular shows, you know, this deal made sense. Um, But it's it's an Another thing to to watch is that none of these business practices are are set steady or locked in stone. So let's take a look at another group of people who are extremely important to how the television industry functions and how television journalists get news, because let's face it, agents are leaking anything and everything. But what does the change in peak TV mean for these agents? That That is the source of right now all of my questions, and I have no answers. And unfortunately, I don't think Adalian talked to agents at all, or if he did, they were on background. Um, but it, I think it's really interesting to think about what are the implications for agents um, who typically are paid by a percentage of, of what their their talent uh, earns. And so, you know, if talent is earning less, I mean, again, not talking about those 1% deals, and you're having to you know, find multiple shows for your client in a season, uh, I it, think... There it, was a big story a few weeks ago about how guest stars are now struggling. People who would say go and appear in a couple of episodes of a few different things because their salaries are dropping substantially. So looking at that from what an agent per, agent's perspective, you know, they have to get many, many more bookings than they used to. And it, it, it's harder to get those spots now than it used to be. Yeah, so I think there's no question that there's there's a lot of work for agents. I think the question is, again, what are the margins like? Right. And, you know, a, a lot of the questions with peak TV are what happens when it all goes away? Could it all go away? Well, it's not going to all go away. Maybe the peak part of it does. And even take away the peak part, right? Broadcast production probably isn't going to drop below what it has been historically. And we have, I think, at least a couple classes of cable channels at this point. And there are some cable channels that are large enough that they'll be able to do continue to do some original production. We're thinking, you know, FX, FX AMC, TBS, USA. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, But, of course, there's clearly some fallout about to happen in terms of cable bundles and packages. And so it will be important for the, that content to be, you know, attractive to viewers and worth watching. Um, I think in many ways, the studios are the canaries in the uh, the notion of the, the the canaries in the coal mine, right? So watching studio profits, I think that's the place to be watching. I mean, it's difficult because all of these entities are so heavily conglomerated where each channel has its own studio producing for it. Each network has its own studio. And so it's often hard to pull apart the numbers. Um, but at least for the people who are in, on the inside and can see the numbers, uh, seeing what's happening with studio revenues, I think that's going to be a real test. And when they start seeing that they're not able to sell content uh, for those second and third runs at the rate and making what they expected that they would earn, then then that's a sign that it's time to cut back on that production, even if there are channels willing to create new series, if they're not... It, if the back end isn't there. And I, I think it's interesting because we talked a lot about today about, you know, what could happen to SVOD and what's happening right now with cable syndication. You know, once these ancillary revenues go away for the studio, that those are the revenues that make it worthwhile. You know, when they... We, we talked with Horace and Pete about deficit financing mm-hmm. um, and how studios lose money right away and in these first few years of a show's run. Mm-hmm. So when these ancillary revenues go away, I, I guess the question that comes up is at what point do these productions not become worth it to them? Well, it's, it's not just an economy of money. It's an economy of time. 
right? And so, and it's the time of viewers. And when there's this much content available, and often, you know, I, I regularly have the problem. There's way more out there that I'd like to watch than I have time to watch. Oh, I, I agree with that completely. And I don't think the models that are behind the amount of programming that's being produced right now take into account the fact that there there really are real capacity limits on on, atten- on the audience's attention. Yeah, I mean, I think I peaked at about 12% of <laughs> what was airing last year. 60 shows. That's a lot of shows. But when that's only 12% right. of what's airing. And then what happens next year, right? So that, that other percent that you wanted to watch, you know, that then has to compete with all of the new development. And that has to compete with all the shows that were great last year. Or, that are or at least back. good and you have faith that maybe they'll improve. No, I mean, I think it's, it's hard to imagine that piece of it. And, but the other side of it is that even though we do talk about studios as separate from channels and networks, the conglomerations are extensively diversified, and they really have positioned themselves to have these multiple revenue streams. And so uh, I think it's important to recognize what developments and changes in the industry could really hurt across the board as opposed to just in particular sectors. But uh, it will it will continue to uh, be an evolving story, fortunately providing us with many episodes to come. I, I think so. So what are we looking at in terms of general takeaways from our conversation here? I think the big thing that I'm looking at going forward is, you know, I think there's this tendency to think about one thing taking over from the other. And I think really that instead of modeling the future that way, it's a recognition that the future is about a diversity in business models and norms. And creatively, I think that's a good thing. I think it makes greater variation possible. Um, but I mean, I th- there's been a huge push for diversity in television over the past few years. And even to bring in our conversation last week about Hamilton, one of the things that's being celebrated is how it diversified Broadway in more ways than one. Right. And so the the notion of diversity in business models as well, um, it, it means that there are different ways to evaluate shows. And so right. the fact that the subscriber sector is stronger than it has been in the past, and the fact that if you're a subscription-based business, you call a hit in a different way than if you're a broadcast network that's really about advertising revenue. So I, I think that, that that allows a lot of different content to be produced, which is a great thing. I think it's really hard for the people working in the industry, though, to try and figure out what are the new men- benchmarks and the baselines of success? And, 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 and what, are, what are the ways I should be spending my time? You know, if I'm only on something that lasts 10 episodes, how do I fill in the rest of my year? Right. And developing really new models for understanding how a show is valuable outside of this expectation of a certain amount in broadcast syndication or a certain amount in, in cable sales or international. And I, I think that's a great place to leave off. I, I think that was a really fascinating conversation about t- peak TV, but it's time to move on to our last segment of each and every show. What are we watching this week? Amanda, are you not going to make me cry about not like you not liking the Americans this week? Oh, no. I, I, I'm, I'm caught up. Or I actually haven't seen the finale yet. I have been catching up on The Good Wife so that we could finish our conversation about The Good oh, Wife. Oh, good, good. Uh, so I am now all the way through, and I have to say, I think the hullabaloo about the finale was somewhat overstated. Really? I, it served as a perfectly fine finale for me. And I think it reveals something about how I watch TV and my expectations of television. See, in, in my life, in my imagination, the characters keep going on when the show is over. And so I think that's why, you know, for me, the, the abrupt ending or the, the, the sense that many have of a lack of closure 
it, it didn't really feel that way to me at all. I really liked what they did with bringing Will back, and I felt mm-hmm. like that actually did... It, it brought some clarity, I think, to the character. Um, and I I enjoy imagining what Alicia is onto now. <laughs> you know, and it, it's interesting because we will see the characters of Diana and Luca Quinn continue on CBS All Access in a Good Wife spinoff. Yeah, uh, we'll talk about that more when it happens. And I, something that I... You know, I I saw the Will stuff as the only sense of real closure in that finale. But what I really, what kind of bothered me about that ending was how angry and bitter it was. It was, you know, I, I don't want to, it, it didn't really fit with the tone of the show for me. And it didn't fit with the tone of these characters and these uh. characters' friendship over the course of the years of the run. It, it was... But there you know, were they, friendships they, they, that were constantly being challenged, right? Someone was always leaving some law firm. Someone was always trying to manipulate someone behind their back. sometimes for stupid and artificial reasons. Right. And, I mean, I guess in a big picture, I agree with you that, that some of the the negative tone um, did, seemed out of step for the show. But I thought it also, if we're talking about the Alicia Florek arc, we saw Alicia do something in that episode that was really unnecessary and distasteful like in terms of um revealing the affair for that's what you're getting at right right well yeah setting that up so that diane had that awkward moment or that difficult moment right and alicia had no stakes there right it wasn't that she was trying to save someone that was innocent and some level she didn't really even care what happened to her husband at that point so i thought she got her proper comeuppance for her behavior um but uh yeah it would have been nice to go out a little bit lighter, perhaps. What are you watching, Alex? You know, I, I've got a couple things I want to highlight today. Uh, the first thing is Unreal is back. Show on Lifetime, set behind the scenes of The Bachelor. That is fantastic. I love this show. And, you know, we talked about The Good Wife being angry and bitter, but my problem was that that didn't fit with the tone of the show. Unreal <laughs> is completely angry and completely bitter and completely cynical. But th- there's something really interesting in what it says about the world of reality television and kind of the cynicism that the producers use to look at the contestants and look at the show they're making. There- there's something to be said about kind of the world in which they're, they're playing. And the world, it- it's set behind the scenes of a The Bachelor-esque reality show. And there's something that it's saying about that world, about these characters, and about the way we and the producers look at these people who are putting themselves on TV and how they're manipulated into doing what they're trying to do. And I also love kind of, in in season two, they're bringing in different characterizations uh, for some of these characters. They're bringing them back in different ways, giving them different things to do, and that's really interesting to me and how it's evolving. Yeah, I missed that the first go-around, and I've been waiting. I haven't figured out where I can get the first Hulu. season. Hulu? Hulu? All right. So when I get to my Hulu marathon, uh, I will get on board with Unreal, because I've heard a lot of great things about it. And I, I also wanted to take a moment to celebrate the, the Tony Awards, um, which we, we talked last week a lot about theater. Of, of course I'm gonna, I was going to watch the Tony Awards. Um, and, you know, this year they happened in a very different context. They happened... The, the night after the deadliest shooting in American history. And to have a celebration that was that joyful and that proud. You know, the theater community, it, it's one of the most genuine communities out there. The Tony Awards are some of the most genuine awards in terms of um, the acceptance speeches 
and the performances. The performances were so good right. during this show. And from a business perspective, uh, one of the highest rated shows, and I think uh, everything that... Since ev- the producers won in 2001. Yeah, everyone, everything that everyone who watched saw last night will probably only mean further good things for the theater industry. So. Yeah, and you know what? It was exactly what was needed after after what happened. And it, w- it was just... Theater has always been, um, in a way, about escaping your world and being brought into a different place, a different time. And whether it makes you laugh, whether it makes you cry, whether, you know, whether it makes you fascinated by what's happening and whether it makes you think about something differently, it's always been an escape. And the Tonys were about as good escapism this year as you could get. All right. And that's it for this week's episode of Media Business Matters. You can find more episodes of Media Business Matters by searching for our name in iTunes, or you can go to amandalots.com and click on the link at the top of the page. In both places, you can find back episodes of our show, and you can find links to subscribe. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. You can follow us on Twitter. Amanda, where can we follow you on Twitter? Dr. TV Lots, D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. And if you have questions that you would like us to take on on the show, you can also email us at drtvlots at gmail.com. And you can find me on Twitter at Alex Zintner. We are very much looking forward to hearing your questions um, as we, we find it really interesting to answer them. We'll be back in a couple weeks and we'll talk to you soon.